From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Dr. Isabella Rossner is an embroidery historian, Royal School of Needlework curator, and the host of the So What podcast. I had an absolute blast talking with Isabella. She is the yin to my yang when it comes to embroidery podcasts. She and I are both excited about needlework and keen to share it with as many different people as possible, but Isabella very much exists in the land of historical embroidery, whereas obviously I'm just obviously at the bleeding edge of what's going on. Uh, yes. Um, I had a great chat with Isabella. We could have gone on for ages. Um, she and I are such a good fit. We're a bit of a super team. I think we've got a mutual appreciation. I think that she knows stuff I don't know. We are a very good combination. And we were able to dive into some really interesting topics of conversation in a two-part chat. The first part of which is gracing your ears now. In this episode, we talk about what it is to be a Royal School of Needlework curator. We find out about how Isabella came to get that role in the first place. And we talk about some of the, if you like, holy grail Royal School of Needlework pieces that she loves. It's a really great conversation. I'm sure you're going to love it. Be sure to tune in next week for the second part of our conversation. And thank you for taking the time to be here. If you're able to share this podcast with one other person you think would be interested, that would be fantastic. But I'm glad to be part of your life and I'll see you soon. Enjoy the show. If I'm the kingpin of contemporary embroidery, I think of you as like the high priestess of historical embroidery. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God, I'm honored, blessed, flattered. Thank you. Because <gasps> let's face priestess. it though, when it comes to like the historical needlework stuff, not only have you got like the best podcast on the planet about that stuff, Oh, thank but, you. So forgive nice. me, you're now a curator at the Royal School of Needlework. Hello. Thank you. I mean, I'm 
I just can't believe it's all happening, to be honest. I am just kind of along for this beautiful ride and just am I just am happy to be involved and to get to look at objects all day and talk to people about them. I don't really know how I ended up. I do know how I ended up here, but like it's kind of surreal still. I want the whole story. I'm sitting comfortably. And by okay. that, I mean, I'm standing comfortably. <gasps> standing ready for it. So usually when I explain to people my life story, it tends to be, you know, I say like, oh, it's like a long and winding road. It's not. It has been a very straight and narrow path and everything makes sense. I started off loving historical dress and that came as a result of growing up in LA where history is oftentimes not very visible because the Native American history has been largely kind of made invisible in that city. So I started watching period dramas and I was like, oh my God, the past, the dresses. (laughs) I didn't realize, like I had always been really interested in fashion, but I kind of didn't realize that people in the past also wore clothing. Like it didn't hit my 11 year old brain. So I got really interested in historical dress. And then when I started uni, I was lucky enough to intern at various museums in textiles because I was like, oh, textiles are close to dress. Like, this is good. Um, and I was like, oh, wait, actually, for me, textiles are really where it's at because these are even oftentimes richer documents about people's lives and like anonymous people's lives. I had never studied. I didn't study history in uni. I never thought history was for me because I like didn't care about numbers in war i didn't care about soldiers i didn't care about like economic crises i was like oh what are people like eating and what are their like what were their hobbies and what did they feel about their worlds Mm. i was always interested in the kind of like i don't know normal people what i now realize is called material culture so then when i started looking at textiles i was like oh my god there's history here we i can look at the past through through these objects and that blew up my world which was so i was so excited about it and i was introduced to embroidery like historical embroidery pretty early on in that process because i was interning at the nantucket historical association nantucket shout is an out island to nantucket historical association shout out to the nantucket historical association <laughs> because i was working at this place where they taught historical art and craft classes and i met edie borier who is a powerhouse and she was the right hand woman of erica wilson uh-huh. we love we have to appreciate and love erica mm-hmm. wilson and she was like do you know how to identify a nantucket sampler and i was like queen i don't even know what a sampler is What's a sampler? <laughs> um that is how fresh we were and she was like oh okay and then she explained what a sampler was of course like you know a needlework kind of exercise a way to practice or just demonstrate your embroidery skills and she said you can identify a nantucket sampler based on a specific tree motif and i was like oh my god what Mm. what what because it it was detective work it was Mm -hmm. the ability to find out about a person and exactly where they were in the world because of a simple image that launched me deep into the world of samplers And then I was lucky enough the next summer to intern at the Met in New York. And my two lovely bosses were working on an installation about samplers. And I was like, can I, can I get in on this? Can I be involved? Please, please, please. Um, And I was able to do research for it. And that, it was samplers, honestly, that started everything. It was samplers that were like 
the thing that took me from historical dress into historical textiles and embroidery specifically. That's why I continue to be a sampler girly. I will love them forever because they're such wonderful genealogical documents, indicators of a person and the world in which they live. And I think that they are a beautiful insight into lives that are oftentimes pretty lost from the historical record. I think that's the interesting point. No, no, no. I think Mm -hmm. that's the interesting point because oftentimes the history we see is a history that has survived. And often that's to paraphrase like the history of the rich folks. Right. So yeah, it's interesting, like you say, to get underneath the surface of that. And like art history, I studied art history for my undergrad and my master's and I really enjoyed it, but I was still finding that art history was not giving me access to the people I cared about, to the normal people. Because even if you're studying, cool, you're studying paintings rather than um, books, documents. And that helped me at least understand what they're like a visual representation of their world. But it was still rich people. It was still the people who could afford paintings. It was still the people who um, could, you know, afford to pay a painter to depict themselves in a very specific way. It wasn't, it ended up feeling to me like, not the real authentic look into normal lives that I wanted. And it was, you know, by the end of it, no offense to uh, the straight white male painters of the world, but I was pretty sick of seeing all of these kind of straight white, you know, Christian male genius, genius painters, um, Mm. Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, all these people who have been kind of touted as the ultimate symbols of western art history i was bored i wanted Mm. something different i wanted something broader something deeper what it feels to me that you described earlier was when you met the lady at nantucket yeah i feel like it's when luke skywalker met obi-wan kenobi for the first time truly truly also because there was like a i would say a similar age dynamic going on she is now how old is Edie? I think she's about 96 or 97 and she's still going strong. Mm. So when I met her, um, it was, she was, you know, in her later eighties and I was 19 and thought I, you know, like most 19 year olds, I thought I knew what was what. And she like (laughs) exploded my world so hard. And also the full circle nature of all of this is really heartwarming and lovely to me because, you know, she was, Erica Wilson's right-hand woman and Erica Wilson was taught at the Royal School of Needlework and now I'm at the Royal School of Needlework and like the fact that Mm. my journey really started with Erica Wilson and Nantucket this Mm. place where she spent so much time and where she you know taught classes and made her home for so many years I just oh the full circle-ness of it all I love it shout out to Edie Borier shout out to Erica Wilson the RSN they are the reason (laughs) I'm here it's so crazy yeah yeah so what is what does to jump exactly to the present day? Mm. What does being a curator at the Royal School of Needlework actually mean? Being curator at the Royal School of Needlework means digitizing and cataloging our surprisingly large collection. I think people don't know that we have at least ten thousand objects and several thousand pieces of archival documentation. I mean, it's a pretty, it's like a really big collection, but it's kind of a secret, which is very exciting for me and I think for everybody else because. I don't know, it feels kind of rare to have the opportunity to kind of come face to face eventually virtually with so many objects, especially, you know, 10,000 objects 
nearly all of which are embroidered. So my current job is cataloging everything, digitizing everything, taking high quality photos. So eventually, soon, uh, we will have a website, a collections website, and it means that everybody will be able to see the objects in our collection. And those objects range from the 8th century. That's the oldest piece in the collection. Yeah, 8th century Coptic weaving, which is amazing, um, until today. And we have some really incredible pieces, things from all over the world. And people just don't know. So this this is the exciting big reveal. So that is the current project. And it's thinking about, you know, my job as curator is thinking about not only how to digitize these objects and make them publicly accessible, but also how to make them accessible in a way that's relevant to our primary Mm. audience, which is stitchers. You know, Mm. it's identifying every stitch, linking uh, this, the uh, Royal School of Needlework collection to the Royal School of Needlework Stitch Bank. It's, you know, identifying motifs and allowing people to search for a specific motif and seeing everything in the collection that has that one image. It's that. So it's early days, you know, we're going to be revealing the first kind of set of objects. And then from there, it will be, me going through boxes and various parts of the collection and kind of um, working to photograph and catalog everything and kind of have things come out in in clumps. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, because the skilling is in curation, isn't it? It's in the uh, presentation of the information in a way that engages people. I guess it's in the storytelling. And yeah. I guess at the moment, what you're discovering the stories as you go along. Definitely. And I mean, every day is a different adventure because it's a different object. The first things that are going to go online are a quite uh, varied selection of objects um, because they represent kind of the breadth and depth of the collection. But it means that when I open a box, I don't know what I'll be seeing that day and what I'll be cataloging. And it's a delicate balance. Like, how do I relay the information that the reader needs to know? Obviously, what it looks like, um, the materials involved, the stitches involved, but also give them a bit of historical context. This 18th century white work baby's cap, you, the reader should probably know that this is not like a one-off, that there was a trend in the 18th century of making corded quilting baby caps and kind of pieces of clothing um, for babies, children, and women. It's that sort of balance relaying information to the public in an engaging way while also making sure that I am being efficient enough that I am able to put out loads of information um, without having to focus, having to spend tens of hours, hundreds of hours on each object. And I will say that I'm not doing this work alone, luckily. Um, I have a very wonderful team of volunteers who have just started and we are moving and grooving we are making progress. We are seeing exciting things. And it's so exciting that the public will eventually be able to see this as well. Hmm. It feels like every day is like Christmas for you. But when you get a present, you then have to take a lot of photos of the present and really understand what the present is made of and detail it, for which probably takes real. a little bit of the fun out of it. I don't know. Yeah, that is, uh, that's honestly exactly what I say. I say to people, every day does feel like Christmas because I don't know what my presents are going to be. But it does hmm. mean that I'm not going like, I'm not unwrapping. I'm being like, oh my God, thank you so much. I am like unwrapping and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. What's happening here? Like spending a lot of time <laughs> with each object. Because I'm guessing as well over time, it's not like, you know, like, I don't know, the Dewey system for libraries or whatever. It's not like these pieces will have been donated and thoroughly detailed at the time when they were given in 1964 or whatever. No, and this is an exciting project because it, um, 
allows us to kind of come to terms with how the collection has been collected over the course of decades. The RSN has been around for more than 150 years now. And for a lot of those years, um, the collection wasn't really treated as a kind of museum collection. Mm. Items were given and very much cared for, but we have oftentimes from stuff in the past, very little information about who gave it or what this thing is. So it again is this bit of detective work that I love. It's piecing together these clues. We don't have any information about this object, but I'm seeing these stitches and, oh, it looks like this piece in this museum collection. And, oh, those colors are interesting. What can we glean from an object itself without knowing the story associated with it? And then I suppose you're... You're creating a taxonomy as you go along, right? Because in some ways you're redefining the way textiles are catalogued because of the variety and the extent of the cataloging you're doing. Yeah, it's a pretty big learning curve because, you know, we're dealing with a new collections management system and we're dealing with a wide variety of textile-based objects. So what I'm learning right now in these kind of early stages is, oh, here's this, you know, a sampler in this first group of objects was the first object that had an inscription. So then it was like, oh, okay, okay. I need to now consider how am I writing about the inscription? What information am I telling the public? Then it means that, oh, this object has an inscription. Now every object that has an inscription will have the same information. But sometimes it's like, I have to go back because I've realized something in a later piece that means I need to change the earlier piece. Mm. It's, um, it's a, it is a learning curve, but I think something that's really important to not only me, but a lot of people, the RSN is consistency. We want mm. people to be able to engage with these objects and see the stitches and have a really good glimpse of these objects, but also know what kind of information they're expecting when they click on an object entry. I want people to know that they should expect a thorough description, a list of stitches and techniques and motifs. And also, if there's a maker, we're going to list that. If there's a place where it was made, we will list that. It's it's about being thorough and consistent. Sorry, something just fell off the table. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. Do you? So I have uh, Jamie Chalmers' voice, and I think I have a Mr. X Stitch voice, which is a bit more. I, I once got Chat GPT to write something in the style of Mr. X Stitch, and it was very alliterative. And I was all like, "Hey, dudes, this and that and the other." And I was hey. just like, I don't, "I'm not sure I entirely sound like that." But bang on yourself. Um, do you have an Isabella voice and a curator voice? Oh, that's a good question. I think they're one in the same. And I think perhaps that is because it's still quite early days for me at the RSN. Mm. Um, and because I, despite having just finished a PhD, I think I don't speak or really act in a buttoned up, very formal way. Mostly because I will I, be getting you some of those Ponce Nez glasses. That's I feel right. Like you need just some of those right just on the here. end of the note. Yeah. Gotta get a blazer those. with like elbow patches level 100%. Up into my academic <laughs> self. I like can't do it. I think I've tried. I think I have tried to sound really like professional and put together and not the excitable kind of chaotic person I am. But it, it the chaos comes through no matter what, and the excitement comes through no matter what. Um, so it means that. What people see and hear and get with me as curator of this collection is also what they see, hear, and get with me just kind of out in the world, I think. I think it's, I think it's perfection. 
because oh, I think the thing yeah. is, is I, I might have a misjudged view here, but I think when you think of historical needlework and then you think of Los Angeles, let's call it, you know, Hollywood style, that those two aren't great bedfellows, but that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of you doing this. And that's the beauty of you doing your podcast and stuff is your exuberant enthusiasm just makes people want to love this stuff. And it's so easy for this to be all very fusty. And today we are talking about medieval textile manufacturing totally using grasses and dung you know it's quite easy to be that isn't it but you're not that and that's what that's the best thing ever thank you that is so nice and it's totally the same with you and I have been thinking a lot about how we share this same goal and come at it from the two different sides which I think is so important this goal of making embroidery cool and relevant and of interest to people because we both know that it actually is all of those things it's just Mm. that if your mom or your grandma or whatever wasn't stitching in your life and you have not come across embroidery or cross stitch before that you might not know how cool it is and how relevant and how radical it can be. So I really appreciate the work that you do and the way you present it to the world, because I think, you know, I do the historical stuff and that's exciting as well, but it's so important to talk about what's happening now because it's such a rich area. There's so much cool stuff going on and it makes me think that anybody who comes across your stuff and that information can think, oh, I can do that too. I can mm. partake in this. I can be part of this, you know, really cool, rich world of of art and community. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think the phrase legendary dream team doesn't come along that often. I was just thinking of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, for instance, that kind of thing. But I think, you know, without there being too much love in the room, I think this could be a thing. This could be a legendary dream team. I agree. It totally the, could. the historic um, and the and the the present together. Yes, the yes. Future, the yin and the yang. And I hope whichever one's the better one of those, that's definitely you. I'm the brutal one of those. I don't two. think that, is there a better one? I think it would be you. We've just entered no. the embroidery love fest here. I hope it's everybody's always... on board. I'm just happy to be involved. I'm loving it. As a, as a girl dad, I know that whatever the feminine option is, that's always the best option. End of story. I know my very good girl dad. Um, adding of you. So in in your time as a curator, then can mm-hmm. you give me examples of maybe like three or four things that you've been like, holy moly, these are the best things I've ever seen in my life. <gasps> yeah. Okay. So number one is this group, this family group of needlework that has come into the collection fairly recently, um, and. Uh, the pieces are largely from around 1730 and they are a holy moly. This is the best thing ever because the color is unbelievable. It's perfect. It's like these things have never seen the light of day. They are professionally embroidered. It's a little boy's waistcoat and like a kind of unstitched pair of women's jumps and a pair of cuffs and the stitching, the stitching is impeccable, professionally done. Love it. Amazing shading, super good. And the color makes it so much better because we're seeing things like these yellows and these purples that just like don't really survive anymore. And it's Mm. what I say all the time when talking about historic embroidery. I think people think of the past. I certainly for a long time thought of the past as, you know, simpler, gentler, (laughs) uh, more sophisticated. Quite beige. Right, beige, right? And like really like pastel and like classy. And what's helpful to realize and what you can realize through some historic embroidery is that, no, it was not. People have always loved color. People have always been kind of garish. People have always chosen 
oftentimes the brightest, most vibrant tones they could. And these pieces of embroidery from this family group, amazing. It really gives us such an insight into how bright the past was and how beautifully stitched it was too. So that's one. Another one. Oh my God. Okay. So my thesis was on Quaker women's art, needlework, waxwork, mm. and shellwork before 1800. Not a Quaker, just kind of hyped to be here, you know? Um, too noisy to be a Quaker, quite frankly. No oh my God. I can't, like literally never in my life have I been able to sit in silence. Impossible. I think their vibes are amazing. And I think their mm. art is amazing as well. So I love to kind of be an onlooker. But one of the things I talked about a lot in my thesis is Ackworth School because contemporary stitchers, a lot of them know about these like medallion style samplers. They're really popular as kits. These like standalone motifs, um, you know, with frames that are octagons or kind of floral wreaths and images like, um, ge like geometric little symbols and squirrels and swans. It's very typical uh, of Quaker needlework from the early 19th century on. And for a long time, people thought that this style, which became so deeply tied to Quakerism, came out of this school called Ackworth, um, which was founded in 1779 in Pontefract, Yorkshire. And that, that school simply kind of made the style more popular. They didn't invent this style, but they, those samplers from Ackworth School are a huge deal. These medallion samplers. The RSN has the oldest known medallion sampler from Ackworth School, oh, which is crazy. Um, it's from 1783. It's the earliest one by five years. It's tiny. I think it got sent in the mail to the RSN in an envelope, like a, just a modern day envelope. <laughs> right. um, and I only knew about it. Like I actually found out about it before I even joined the RSN because I was lucky enough to read an undergrad's dissertation about needlework and education. And she knew about the sampler and she included it. And Amy Hare, who was the former RSN contextual studies lecturer, senior lecturer, showed it to me last year. And I was on the floor. I was like, it, it was a game-changing object, and it continues to be a game-changing object. And I just, oh, oh. Is it yeah. like, is it like, like your precious? You're like, my it precious. Is, it is so my precious. It really, like, feels <laughs> like my child. Um, the person who made it is named Benjamina Rickman, and I am like, you have been dead for so many hundreds of years, and yet I'm obsessed with you. Like, thank you for mm. your service. I love her. How do you feel about reincarnation? Could you I be feel really good about it? And if Benjamina, if you're out there and if you're listening to this podcast, like let me know. Mm. Hit me up. Yeah. Would love to have a chat. You could even be Benjamina. This is the thing. I mean, people have never seen me and Benjamina Rickman in the same place. So who's that to say? 100%. Who's to good. say? Perhaps. Okay, those are two of some of my favorites, but I'm can mm -hmm. I talk about one, a third one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you. There's this object that's very, very beloved at the Royal School of Needlework, which is called the Grove Book. And if people have ever attended any of the RSN live talks or watched them after they go up online, they will probably know about this object because our chief executive, Dr. Susan K. Williams, has given a few talks about it. Mm -hmm. So the Grove book is this gigantic, like really actually very big book um, that was put together by a woman named Georgina Grove in the late 19th and like early 20th century centuries plural and she was the wife of a brigadier general and so she traveled the world with her husband and collected textiles and put them all in this book and she embroidered the cover of the book 
And the husband gave us the RSN, the book in 1924 after she passed away. And that is the book where the oldest piece in the RSN collection is housed, that eighth century Coptic weaving. And that book is what a banger. Oh my God. There's so much stuff in there. Just amazing. Like crazy stuff, like cloth of gold, you know, bits of like an 18th century apron. Um, there's a sampler again, Quaker, my bias, but there is a <laughs> sampler that matches like almost to a T um, a sampler in the VNA. And we just know that these girls went to school together. It was like, it's very clear that they were connected in some way. And Georgina, I'm obsessed with her. She just collected everything. And she clearly had such an interest in different embroidery techniques, different weaving techniques, different ways in which a variety of cultures kind of engaged with textiles. And she put it all in this book. Mm. It's yeah. look how big my eyes are right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you get it. I was just thinking about there's a couple of crazy little museums I, I'm aware of that are like there's one in Tring and I think it's part of the Natural History Museum now. But it was mm. almost like rich man travels world collects animals, you know. So yeah. this is that textile version of that, isn't it? Yeah. And it's part of this larger world of wealthy, oftentimes European or American women traveling the world in the kind of Victorian Edwardian periods and engaging with textiles. You know, there's a woman uh, who did this a few decades later with samplers and she donated all of them to the Met. And they're like, she donated like, I don't know, 500 samplers or something huge. And it was clear mm. that she had gone around England. She had gone around places like maybe even Germany and the U S collecting this thing that she was so passionate about. And I love very much this, idea of people who were wealthy enough to kind of travel the world and engage with different cultures choosing to collect textiles and embroidery they were so passionate mm. about this stuff that they basically created for us embroidery encyclopedias just through their own love of the thing yeah and kind of love thank it. god that they did because as you said it's quite easy for history to be overwritten and to go back to the <sighs> first object that you were talking about I read Dr. Susan's book, The History of Colour in Textiles. And and to me, colour is a thing that we so take for granted now. People go to their shop and they see all of the threads in all of the colours and stuff. And one of the things that was fascinating to me about the book was how, for a long time, textiles couldn't depict life in the way that painting could because the technology of colour wasn't there, you know, and mm -hmm. how cochineal became a spanish national secret and all of these things right. i would just wonder whether yeah i'd like to get your take on that whole element really i think it's so interesting uh, so i think dr k williams is really an expert when it comes to dyes and i'm just kind of along for the ride learning from her and not knowing i'm not gonna say dye. she's yoda but you know the analogy <laughs> She's certainly, she's she is, she's certainly Yoda adjacent, if not straight up Yoda herself, you know? <laughs> love you, um, love you. Lo I would love to be Yoda adjacent. Um, I find, I don't know anything about dyes other than what I see with historic embroidery. And I see things like um, purples not surviving and reds fading into tans. And, you know, like I see a lot of the damage of time on mm. dyes and on textiles but I love, one of the things I love about embroidery, the stuff that I look at is that oftentimes 
the front and back tell really different stories when it comes to those mm. colors and when it comes to kind of mm. this object's journey. The front is so often faded because it's been on display um, on a wall. You know, it's been maybe framed and put on a wall, but the the back tells a completely different story. It tells the story of what this thing likely originally looked like. The colors are so bright. And with that, we see not only these colors, but we see the stitches. Did this person have access to a lot of material? Like was she or he just kind of vibing and kind of bopping the threads all over the place? Or was there an emphasis on really fine, delicate and skilled stitching or a, a kind of investment in being economical with this with the thread so are you seeing like a much more precise kind of map of stitches on the back in these bright colors I think that overlap of color and stitch when it comes to the historical pieces is really interesting but yeah it's just so apparent to me that we we and when I say we I mean me we view the past as a different country we view the past as a as a different world um but really we've always been the same and we've always, we've loved color and we, you know, we are in a different world now because we have all of these artificial dyes in every co mm. possible color. And that was not the case for people hundreds of years ago. But the thing that shocks me so much about some of that is they were achieving highlighter yellow and highlighter pink bright colors, like really, really bright stuff with, natural pigmentation i do not know how i would love to know how um but i really yeah tied to my belief that the past was like classier which is not correct at all was <laughs> my belief yeah was my belief that colors couldn't get that bright and the needlework mm. says that is not the case at all that's really cool that's really cool um Let's talk about that. Let's talk about, hmm. so, your interest in normal life from yeah. history. A lot of people will now be thinking Bridgerton is history. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, isn't it? Yes. The crowd is yes, history. Yes, yes. Um, what, 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 how has your perspective changed on that concept? You know, what do you know about normal life back in the day that would be interesting? I feel like, okay, so... I'm going to talk about Quakers because I always do, mm -hmm. but I think they're a pretty interesting indicator of how we perceive normal people in the past versus how normal people in the past actually were. So mm. I, as a non-Quaker, thought mm, Quakers were like the Quaker oatmeal man, like Puritan. I knew that they had come to America because there was like, um, I had been taught that Quakers kind of came to Pennsylvania because of religious persecution. Um, and they, you know, kind of found, they founded, they settled um, in an area that was obviously already settled in by Native Americans, mm -hmm. but they, they founded the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and I was like, oh, they're they're like the Mayflower people. Just a bit later, they are mm. like kind of Amish adjacent. They're out, you know, separated from the world. That is so totally what I thought. And I think that's what most people think. And that is also, in my experience, a lot of what Quakers themselves are taught that they were always mm. exceptional and apart from the wider world. But what studying their needlework has told me is so, nope not that not that at all the difference between the needlework and and the written word the difference between um object and document is crazy they are diametrically opposed because quakers were writing from the very beginning about the value of teaching your children apart away from the world's children teaching being taught by Quaker teachers, not using certain thread colors, 
don't, you're not going to make turkey work. Don't do turkey work. Don't do, <laughs> don't make unnecessary needle lace in your baby linens, all of this stuff. But they were doing everything. They were doing all of that. And they were oftentimes uh, using and creating needlework that was even more decorative than their non-Quaker counterparts. Mm. And what that has taught me about normal people is that I feel like when I think about people in the past, for a long time, I always thought of them as being their identities, being um, a Quaker was in my head more important than everything else for them. And that being a Quaker dictated everything. And because Quakers were opposed to excess and were kind of really dedicated to plainness and dress and speech and behavior, I thought, okay, their needlework is going to be plain as well. Hmm. Because that's not the case, it makes me realize Quakers were people too. Like people, people are walking contradictions. People are complicated. People have loves and things that don't align well with their politics or their communities. Um, it has made me realize that normal people are as complicated as we are today. Like mm. the fact that I was a vegetarian for six years, except I ate bacon. Um, very, <laughs> a real okay. contradictory move. Therefore I was not a vegetarian, right? Yeah. 100%. Um, that's what that means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was not, so, but I was a, I was a bacon exclusive meat eater. Um, but <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the same thing. Like these Quakers were being taught something and said, Nope. Like that's, not that relevant to me or I actually want to be kind of having a, a different relationship to needlework, a different relationship to stitch than what is being said to me. Um, just shows that normal people, they're not black and white. We aren't black and white. They're really complicated. Um, the needlework shows us that complication. It shows us that some women in the past, especially in the 19th century, did not want people to know their real age. So they removed mm. their age in their samplers. Okay. Um, there's this example I work at, in addition to the RSN, I work at Whitney antiques, which is, has the largest stock of early modern needlework. And I guess schoolgirl needlework in the world, probably it's certainly in Britain. Um, and there's a sampler there made by a girl named Rachel S. Cooper in the 19th century. And it's perfect. It's in really good shape, except for where she just removed her age because <laughs> you just know it was like 1860 and she hadn't, she did not want people to know whether she was 30 or 40. And right. I find that, I don't know, relatable. Like I see yeah. that in people now. Thanks for joining me on another Needle Exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you. So feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the Needle Exchange mailing list at bit.ly, bit.ly forward slash needle exchange. See you next time.